This series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. We waited a while for it, but the new NFL season is here and the action is coming thick and fast. We've looked into the openers for week two, and now it's time to take a deeper dive into the matches. Here to help is Adam Chernoff. Hello again, Adam. Hey, Ben. Ready for week two. Good stuff. Let's not waste any time and we can get straight to it. Our first match is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Carolina Panthers, and in this one, Carolina opened as a six and a half point favourite, and they've moved out slightly to minus seven. We're on a key number now, so the continued action on them might just see the odds drop instead of that number moving. Um, the over-under has dropped a point from 50.5 to 49.5, and that looks pretty solid now. Um, both of these two come into week one off, come, come into week two after a loss. Carolina obviously probably won't be too disappointed again about their performance against the Rams, while Tampa Bay would have expected much more than a 14-point defeat to the 49ers. So what do you make of this matchup? Well, I think the big thing to really think about here is that post-game, if you watch the interviews with the coaches, Ron Rivera said that Cam is not limited. But if you watch the game, it's hard to really agree with that just going off of the eye test. There were a lot of throws that we're used to seeing Cam Newton make that he was overthrowing. He was throwing behind his receivers. He left a lot of opportunities out on the table. So while it is the Rams coming into your stadium and obviously the defending Super Bowl runner-up, uh, it was great that the Rams or the Panthers were competitive throughout the match, but you certainly have to be a little bit disappointed from from the Panthers' side considering just how much was left out there. Um, outside of the 60-yard drive, which Carolina put together sort of in garbage time when they were trailing by 10, they actually had some really good scoring drives, 36 yards, 60 yards, 56 yards. Uh, so they were moving very well. I thought when the offense was clicking that there was really good pace that they were playing with. Uh, but scheme-wise, we know that North Turner coming into Carolina last year put a focus on these short passes. And whether that was just part of his offensive philosophy or it was just trying to protect the shoulder of Cam Newton, uh, both of them sort of worked together. And we saw a lot of that, but we also saw Christian McCaffrey get a boatload of carries. He led the team not only in rushing, but also in receiving as well. So he's a clear focal point of this team. But I certainly have some questions regarding the health of Cam Newton, his throwing ability, and just how it works within that system. And it, it, time will tell if that was rust from the preseason and not getting too many reps. I ended up hurting his foot week three against New England, so he was limited in that regard coming off of uh, all of the work he had done in the offseason. But certainly looked a lot different than the Cam Newton that we know from years past in that opener against the LA Rams. So that number might seem a little bit large at first glance, but it was really shocked with Tampa Bay and the performance that they put forward. Uh, there was so much hype on the Buccaneers in the off season. I certainly bought into it as well uh, with Bruce Arians coming over, uh, Todd Bowles on defense and Byron left, which is the offensive coordinator, a ton of optimism around this Buccaneers team. And they did everything to disappoint against the 49ers at home in that opener. There was a bit of a flu bug going around, but I think that that becomes the easy excuse. But if we're looking through this game, there was so much left on the table by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And while I usually look at this as sort of a, an unlucky spot where it goes positive, but you have to consider the Buccaneers, um, despite not scoring until late in the game, uh, they ran plays on the San Francisco 43 
30, 24, 2, 13, and 37. Those six drives resulted in a net of three total points. So you, you've been sort of a, you have one or two bad drives, and it certainly shows off in the, stat, in the box scores if you do a little bit digging. But now we're looking at six different drives where the Buccaneers' offense just completely wasted opportunities. And they still end up losing that game pretty comfortably. It's it's certainly concerning what's going on with Tampa Bay. Jameis Winston just looked a little bit lost in the new system. It was really concerning to see they did not let him throw the ball downfield whatsoever. Kept things very tight and conservative, which was shocking. Um, that defensive touchdown went a long way. So certainly concern for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The under makes sense. This movement, as you mentioned, coming down from 50 and a half to 49 and a half. Uh, would have to think that on a short week, this first-time coaching staff, although they have experience in the league, uh, first unit together on the short week within the division on the road, not a good situation for Tampa Bay. So not too much to expect from this number either way. And just to go back to Cam Newton there and how important, obviously, injuries can be, especially to key players, we get all this um, pitch-side reporting and, and Twitter and everything like that, and sometimes you said that the eye test is a better measure, but... With him specifically, how many weeks do you let it go on? How many kind of games do you analyze him and see how important or how crucial that injury could be? Well, the it's going to be enormous if it proves to be something that, that continues throughout the course of the season. But the fact is that Cam was getting a lot of easy throws. His expected completion percentage in week one was 72%. And on those easy throws, which he typically makes at a very high rate, he only completed 65% of his passes. So that negative six was the sixth worst mark of quarterbacks in week one in terms of completion percentage versus expected completion percentage. And when you consider that he was only targeting players downfield in an average of 6.3 yards from the line of scrimmage, uh, it's not like he was being put under a lot of pressure to make big throws. He was just missing the easy throws. So that's really the concern. If that continues, it's an enormous blow to the Carolina Panthers and their upside because it puts a ton of pressure on Christian McCaffrey. I, I test early says that there's something a little bit more concerning than is made, being made out to be, but that may, and hopefully for the sake of the Panthers change in the next couple of weeks, but certainly uh, the next two or three weeks will be very important to getting a better understanding of what's going on. So on to the Arizona Cardinals at the Baltimore Ravens, Baltimore opened up at a big minus 14 and they now sit on minus 13 on the handicap and it looks like that could go back to where it started. Um, the over-under has jumped up quite a bit from 42.5 to 47. It potentially maxed out at that number. So, again, maybe on the way back down again soon. In terms of last week's performances, the, the Cardinals, they struggled for prolonged period against periods against the Lions. They were probably a little bit fortunate to come away with a, a 27-27 tie. The Ravens... I mean, let's not make any bones about it. They they ripped the Dolphins apart, and I think it was a franchise franchise record fifty nine and ten win. So, will the Ravens dominate so heavily again? Uh, there's a couple interesting things with this number. So, from the look ahead perspective, and it's something we'll bring up through the course of the season in Las Vegas preseason. There's a summer line that's released, and that number was eight and a half in favor of the Baltimore Ravens last week. They also send out the week two openers at some of the major casinos. They had this one pegged at nine and a half. So seeing Pinnacle now open 14, we're looking from the summer line, almost a full touchdown of adjustment uh, from just last week alone, the difference between Pinnacle and the Las Vegas casinos, uh, about five and a half points. So 
I certainly agree with the pinnacle opener at this number. Um, I was a little bit surprised to see it come off, but I understand why it did. But I don't think that people should be buying into Arizona just yet. If you're watching that Arizona-Detroit game, uh, just from a sort of a casual perspective, you might think that what you saw late with the Arizona Cardinals coming back with a rookie head coach, rookie quarterback making their first uh, coaching and quarterback start in the league was uh, a reason for optimism. But if you look prior to that and really what adjusted within the game, the Cardinals before Detroit went up 24 to six and really switched to a prevent defense late in the fourth quarter or mid, mid, mid stages in there. Uh, the Cardinals drives up to that point went for five yards, four yards, nine yards, two yards, 11 yards, six yards, five yards, minus three yards and three yards. And the only reason they had any points was because the Lions muffed the punt deep in their own zone. So up to the time when Detroit really switched around their defensive play calling, went to a much higher rate of zone defense, and then offensively switched to running the football more and being conservative, just trying to run out the clock. It really opened up the game for Arizona. And if we sort of do some subtraction here, cutting out those garbage time drives, as well as what we saw in overtime, Arizona gained just 42 of their 293 yards against a non-prevent zone defense of Detroit. So when you're looking at this game as a whole, it started off extremely bad for Arizona. Uh, and I think that that was sort of an indictment of their offense as a whole. They ran from a four wide receiver set at a astronomical rate, over 60%. That was more than 30% higher than any other team in the league. Kyler Murray, in terms of his intended air yards downfield, he was averaging the fourth highest rate of throws downfield at 10.5 yards per pass attempt. Uh, in terms of his completion percentage, he played uh, right around average. He was only minus 0.1 difference between completion percentage and expected completion percentage. And at 53% completion rate, that's not going to win you a lot of games in the NFL. So have some questions about how this team is calling plays. Uh, going on the road at Baltimore, the big concern for Arizona right now, they have their number one and number two cornerbacks, Patrick Peterson, Robert Alford, both out for extended periods of time. Peterson suspended. Alfred's got a bad injury. So they're down to depth guys defending the number one and number two receivers of opponents. Uh, but also the Arizona offensive line has a lot of concerns as well. And it's worth monitoring the injury report. But Kyler Murray consistently under pressure from a Detroit defense that pales in comparison to the Ravens defense. So I can certainly see why this number moved up as much as it did. I uh, certainly agree with that opener and such an extreme adjustment that the pinnacle traders uh, posted with 14 on the board. As far as the total, when a, when a side like this is getting so much influential recreational, basically all of the action going on the over driving it up this high, uh, I never recommend stepping in and being sort of the first guide to resist such a big wave of money uh, and such a big movement. So you sort of want to wait for this to settle out. seems like we've sort of settled now at 47. Uh, I certainly can't make a case for the over, just given how much I saw through the Arizona offense early in the game, how much I think the Baltimore defense is going to be playing in the backfield and causing trouble in the first true road game for this Arizona Cardinals uh, first-time coaching staff and quarterback. Uh, could get pretty ugly, but awfully big number to lay on the point spread. If anything, I'd be looking over whenever this number settles, whether it be 47 or 48. And as you said there, it looks like kind of a difficult game for Kyler Murray. But on 
kind of rookies in the NFL in general. I mean, obviously there was a lot of hype about Murray. People have, have come through the levels to get to the NFL. They've, they must be talented. How long do you kind of give these players to, to maybe adjust or, or get up to speed with the league? Well, I think the first season, especially coupled with the first time head coach, is, is certainly concerning. And we're going to see them go through lots of different situations. Uh, this situation certainly does them no benefit from the matchup uh, going up against what's likely to be the number one defense in the league. Uh, injuries go a long way to do that as well. If these two cornerbacks can't get any support, um, the number three and four guys for Arizona, that's going to sort of switch Arizona into needing to play catch up. So I'm not sure there's necessarily a time frame where we can say, yeah, he's going to be NFL caliber or no, this is going to be a bust. I think it's more just really evaluating the specific situations and the matchups that go along with the week to week progression throughout the first course of the season. So we'll move on to the Buffalo Bills at the New York Giants. And the, the Bills have dropped slightly from 2.5 to 1.5, with the over-under bumping up slightly to 43.5. But again, another one that could be on its way back down. And I think the, the strength of the Bills' d- defense was, was evident in their, their Week 1 win. Um, they came from 16 down against the New York Jets. They, they made hard work, hard work of it, but they got there in the end. Um, and their opponents, the Giants, they were comfortably beaten by the Cowboys in the opening game. So the numbers suggest it's going to be close and potentially low scoring. But how do you see this one panning out? This is the most telling adjustment for me of week one. And we're probably going to get to the New England game, which had an enormous adjustment. But we mentioned Baltimore, too. But um, Buffalo and the lookaheads here, they're about a two and a half point underdog at the New York Giants. So with Pinnacle... Uh, the traders over there opening two and a half. Uh, we're seeing a pretty significant move, albeit not necessarily over any key numbers, but just really swapping the favorites. And I understand the buyback because people saw the Giants play, and although they took um, quite a convincing loss at the Dallas Cowboys offensively, uh, they looked pretty good. And that's really what the market tends to sort of lean towards in judging success. When you look at 7.1 yards per play, Uh, that's not going to lose you many football games in the NFL. And despite that, the Giants uh, ended up losing by double digits, which I think is really an indictment of their defense as a whole, has potential to be one of the worst units in the NFC. I think on paper, everyone was sort of anticipating a decline with the defense with so many key departures in the offseason. But no one really expected it to manifest like it did in week one. And while we're sort of in overreaction mode, I don't think that that's necessarily something to overreact to. I think they actually played sort of to their level of what we can expect going forward. The Buffalo Bills, on the other hand, it's an interesting spot, right? Because we see the Giants as such a big movement against them. And there's like initially a case to make it against the Giants for not needing that move against them, especially with the home team in this situation. Uh, But if we look at the Bills, they're really going to go unnoticed for their performance in the opening week. If you just dive into that box score a little bit, you'll see that despite being down 16-0 in the fourth quarter, the Bills ended up outgaining the New York Jets by 147 total yards, 2.5 yards per play, and 3.0 yards per pass. So from just digging in from a box score perspective, the Bills absolutely dominated the Jets for all four quarters, but the scoreboard and how the game played out didn't necessarily reflect that. The turnovers really killed the Bills. They turned it over four times in the first half. They didn't really get Devin Singletary going until midway through the third quarter. Once he did, this offense took on a completely different look. Things that eased up for Josh Allen. 
uh, and everything started to flow a lot. But this defense for Buffalo, very real, very aggressive, uh, especially against the run. And being able to limit Saquon Barkley certainly will go a long way in shutting down this Giants offense, which has a number of injured playmakers. Now some concerns coming between the, the ongoing debate at quarterback. There's some extra pressure there. This offensive line not doing them any favors in terms of preventing pressure. Uh, the Bills love to get aggressive. I think that this big adjustment that we saw at the opener was probably the true price in this game. Now, I'm not sure I agree with the movement back towards the New York Giants at this point. But it seems like it's going to continue ticking down a little bit. So if you're waiting to get a good number on Buffalo, you should probably wait a couple more days. Uh, the snag the best of this number and as you said there's there's a theme emerging already here and something that we'll talk about in a, a few of the games later as well of that that fluctuation from the look ahead to to when pinnacle opens now the question i guess is how much should people be reading into that because obviously we're going to see a lot of reaction when we first start seeing how teams perform well from there's a pretty good article i wrote on pinnacle on the pinnacle article library uh, about look ahead lines and how important it is in the NFL. These numbers certainly get dialed in later in the year uh, to where they're much closer, but still from a look ahead perspective, although the limits are lower, um, they're available on Tuesday or Wednesday, the week prior, uh, one in four games is moving at least two and a half points. That the amount that it moves gets significantly smaller as the year goes on. But what's interesting here looking at like week one and week two specifically is there's going to be more look ahead lines than there are games played. Um, it catches up to where the summer line becomes less relevant as we get on to the course of the year. And then we're going on a week by week basis. But considering that there was the summer look ahead plus the week one look ahead uh, going into the week two games, we're getting not only uh, sort of the initial baseline price of the summer, we're getting an initial reaction to what occurred um, prior to week one throughout the preseason, any acquisitions, how those affect teams. And then now with the opener for week number two, uh, we're getting to see a clear reaction point against all of that news based on the first performance. So it's a really good indicator of how uh, the bookmakers are feeling and where they think the right price to put a game is and sort of waiting what we're hearing with all the noise. And then we can really compare that against what the market's seeing based on how they're adjusting to some of these prices. And you can sort of pick holes to see what's right or wrong and sort of judge that movement going um, for or against the look-aheads to really sort of dial in your power numbers on teams individually uh, in these early weeks. But as we get later in the season, it'll become a lot closer and anything that stands out will be much more evident and there'll be a stronger reason behind why. And you can just work to prove it right or wrong in your own handicapping. So now we've got the Dallas Cowboys at the Washington Redskins and it seems like they're there isn't much confidence in the Cowboys as they drop from six and a half point favorite to a four and a half point favorite, and the the market still seems pretty keen on the Redskins at that number. While the the over under has gone up two and a half points since opened, and it it sits on forty six and a half. Now, this is one it it sticks in my mind. Last week, you were very kind of vocal about the Redskins being so potentially underestimated against the Eagles, or the Eagles being overestimated, and obviously. It looked like for long periods of time in that game that they they could potentially get an unlikely upset until the Eagles powered through towards the end. Um, the Cowboys had a, a fairly routine victory over the Giants. I guess the question is here, the Redskins did better than many people thought they would in week one. Do you think they can repeat that performance? It was I, I was shocked with how the Redskins came out, more specifically in their play calling. Um, 
this was a team that got rid of their best receiver just a couple of days before the regular season started. They had three running backs, Peterson, Kais, and Thompson, which, uh, according to Jay Gruden, all of the focus of the offense was going to go through those running backs. And clearly he tricked um, everyone, including myself. He ended up throwing 44 passes and ran the ball just 13 times, which netted 2.2 yards per carry, which is abysmal. Uh, the Eagles secondary, which uh, given their depth, was really a unit that was anticipated to be quite a good unit in 2019. They ended up conceding 8.2 yards per pass. So, I mean, that was really concerning to see from the Eagles' perspective. But the Redskins under Case Keenum, they were able to spread the ball around. They had seven different guys catch a pass in that game. So it, it was a team that took on a completely different look in a situation within a divisional game uh, that really I didn't give them too much credit for, nor did the market. That game opened seven last week, ended up closing 10. So there was pretty significant money going against the Redskins. I think they caught a lot of people off guard. Now going into this week, they got another divisional game, this time the benefit of playing at home, although the Redskins overall home field advantage not really too significant for them. Um, I certainly understand why this game moved down and whether that's a combination of the Redskins overperforming and catching people off guard or the Cowboys uh, overperforming to the perspective of a lot of people. Uh, Cowboys ended up gaining 8.0 yards per play. Uh, but again, that was going against the Giants defense, which we just were pretty strongly against. Uh, the Redskins, 6.7 yards per play, still pretty good. That 8.2 yards per pass, really the number I'm looking at against an Eagles secondary uh, that I was expecting to do quite well, as was much of the market. So we're sort of seeing uh, two teams, despite the scores and the results, which a lot of people will bet on in the NFL markets, dig a little bit deeper. And you might see that the Cowboys may be a little bit inflated because of the Giants defense and the Skins may be a little underappreciated uh, because of the defense they went against with the Eagles. So interesting divisional matchup where the spread's usually a lot tighter than this. Uh, seeing it open at six and a half, I think the movement down makes sense. Uh, the over... 44 up to 46 and a half. That's a very strong move, really indicative of the points uh, scored. And lots of opportunities to get in the end zone that we're going to see from these two teams this week. So uh, very powerful move on the over. That's very real. So we've got the Indianapolis Colts at the Tennessee Titans, and this is one that looks very stable in terms of the betting numbers. There's been even action on the handicap. I think the Titans are minus three um, and the over under has moved a touch from 44 to 44 and a half. Um, a lot was obviously made of the, the Colts quarterback issues. And I guess you can read into the numbers how you like from week one. They didn't look too great on paper. And meanwhile, the, the Titans stormed to a 43 and 13 victory over the Browns. It was probably the biggest shock of week one. Um, and I think that one you've said before, not to, to read too much into that and game state needs to be considered. Um, so what do you think of this? I thought Jacoby Brissett did reasonably well for his debut with the team as the quarterback or the number one quarterback. Uh, things were pretty conservative for him the entire game uh, going against the Chargers defense. Uh, very good in coverage. Uh, some numbers that stand out, his completion percentage, 77.8%. That was about 6.5% greater than his expectancy. Uh, that puts him in the top seven, I guess we'll call them overachievers uh, for week number one. Uh, but really looking at his his air yards that were intended, which is basically when he threw a pass, counting the distance from the pass to the receiver, uh, he was only intending six air yards per attempt. 
if you look at the other quarterbacks that he's in this sort of anyone greater than 5% above their expectation, uh, we're looking at Lamar Jackson, Gardner Minshew, Derek Carr, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, and Dak Prescott. Dak, Russell, Drew, and Lamar uh, were all at least 7.5 air yards per attempt per set down at 6, and that was just slightly better than Gardner Minshew at 5.5. So despite this overperformance, game plan, and pass attempts for him, uh, they were very conservative. He was throwing into tight coverage a lot of the time, too. Uh, so a formidable effort. It, the situation, though, for the Colts, uh, since the new CBA came in, there's a very uh, strong tendency for these teams to start the season with back-to-back road games to really struggle in the second game of the week. And I think that's sort of magnified with the fact that there was such a late switch to the system with Andrew Luck retiring after the third preseason game. Uh, and really opening things up for Jacoby Brissett and sort of taking over. Uh, there was definitely some points left on the table last game. Vinatieri, usually very solid, missed two field goals, missed an extra point. Uh, but if not for a late interception that allowed the Colts to get that late drive, that game would have never went to overtime too. So there's arguments that can be made for and against the Colts and their performance on the road at the Chargers. Uh, so... really not putting too much stock into that box score in terms of uh, overreaction one way or the other. In terms of uh, just success rate and yards per play, Colts did pretty well, 6.1, which puts them near the top of the league, at least in the top quarter. So uh, definitely get the appetite to back the Colts from some people. We're not seeing it nearly as much this week as we were last week. And again, I think that just plays into the situation. I don't buy the Tennessee Titans at all. Um, they're a team that I'm not looking to back at, at any point of, over the course of this season. Uh, numbers compared to Indianapolis, very comparable. Again, 6.1 yards per play. Um, the different, the, the one thing that really stands out is when we're looking at uh, missed yards per attempt. And that's an interesting stat because you can look at how successful teams are and it'll paint a very one-sided picture if they have a game like the Titans did when they ended up winning by 30 points. Uh, but you want to really pay attention to the plays that don't typically get accounted for in the stat sheet. And a good metric to look at is missed yards per attempt. And that's basically looking for uh, yardages that were left out based on down and distance, which would result in a play being deemed successful. And because the Titans relied on so many explosive plays and defensive plays, they had a missed yards per attempt of 4.1 which is the third worst mark in week one, despite that win by 30 points. So the explosive plays benefited the Titans in an enormous way. Uh, but other than that, if you strip it down and just look at neutral game state plays, Titans left a lot out on the table. And it's a very concerning thing that I think is going to be true and hold throughout the course of the season. So I'm not rushing the back to Tennessee Titans and fade that spot, which has proven to be historically bad for these teams on the second back-to-back road game. Um, but I would understand why people might be looking to the Colts here if this number gets any bigger, just to stay away from me all around. And now we've got the Jacksonville Jaguars at the Houston Texans, and this is another one that the traders seem to have done pretty well with in terms of balance in the market. There's been there's been no movement on the handicap with the Texans still minus 8.5. Um, the over-under has dropped by half a point uh, since it opened down to 43. In terms of week one for these two teams I mean it was full of drama for for different reasons I guess the Texans they were seconds away from a a big win against the Saints and then obviously the the Jaguars lost out to the Chiefs but the, the big story there is the Nick Foles potentially seasoning ending injury and how much of a disappointment that's going to be for Jacksonville so 
Do you think his replacement, can Gardner Minshew, do anything to negate that big handicap discrepancy? So there's going to be very two very strong perspectives on Gardner Minshew after the performance in week one. So he came into the game midway through the second quarter, early in the second quarter. Uh, so his stat sheet, the common stat sheet reads 22 of 25 passing. Very good. 275 yards. Great. And two touchdowns with a pick. Not too bad. But if we're going to dig into this just a little bit further, uh, you have to consider that his two big touchdown drives came in the fourth quarter late when the Jacksonville Jaguars were trailing by 24 and 21 points. And even the Kansas City Chiefs with their explosive offense, they're not when they're up three touchdowns or more on the road, uh, they're not going to be anywhere near calling optimal plays as they would if it was a neutral game state early in the game. So offensively, the Chiefs really dialed it in late in that game. Defensively, they went into a very soft zone coverage defense. And I went back and I watched the game just to see how soft it was. And it was extremely soft. They were conceding anything that they wanted. Um, and Minshew was really taking it. If we look at some numbers here, just to try to make a case for or against Gardner Minshew, uh, like I said, the basic numbers will suggest that he does really well. And we're probably going to hear throughout the week leading up to the games that there's a lot of positive things to expect from Gardner Minshew. We'll start with sort of a baseline. In the preseason, he had the third most dropbacks of any quarterback, 108. He completed just 56.3% of his passes, and those came against second and third unit defenders. There's some play calling uh, discrepancies and stuff we don't need to get into, but we'll just use that as a baseline. This game... He finished with an 88% completion percentage, which most importantly here is obviously significantly higher than that baseline he sort of set in preseason. Um, but his expected completion percentage in this game was 71%. So that difference is 16.2%. The only quarterback of week one to have a greater positive differential was Lamar Jackson, who, as you mentioned in the lead up to the show and in the Baltimore Ravens game, had one of the most historic offensive passing performances in franchise history for the Ravens. So we're putting Gardner Minshew in that category, just looking at how much he overperformed against the Kansas City Chiefs defense that had an enormous lead and was conceding everything underneath. And if we dive in a little bit further, intended air yards, so how far he wanted to, how far Minshew wanted to pass under the play call called by John Filippo, 5.5. That was the low, second lowest of any quarterback in week one. So not only did he have this enormous overperformance, he was doing so under the easiest distance of passes to throw in the league against one of the softest defenses in the league. Minshew, he only attempted five passes his entire game, more than 10 yards downfield. Um, so that's enormous. And on those passes, uh, he only ended up completing two of them, uh, and those were in the middle of the field where he targeted uh, more than 75% of his passes. So even though he he had a very good game, very simplistic play calling, very soft defense, so these numbers, very misleading. One more thing to wrap up on Minshew, he had a perfect 158.3 passer rating against pressure. As anyone who bets the NFL knows, that is not sustainable. So there's Plenty of things to point out that suggested that performance of Minshew last week uh, was very misleading, and it can only go down from here. Probably we're going to see that regression happen right away with the Houston Texans coming in. Uh, obviously, one of the best defensive fronts in the league took a step down without Clowney, uh, but they're certainly going to be able to generate pressure against this Jacksonville Jaguars offensive line, 
which has two pieces on the injury report, so worth monitoring for that. Um, obviously, a much different scenario playing at home in the heat than going on the road to Houston to play on that fast surface, which is certainly going to benefit the Texans uh, quite a bit from a point spread perspective. I think we're seeing a bit of overreaction to what the Texans did against the Saints. Um, that offensive line was an enormous liability, even though they added in a couple key pieces late in the offseason. Uh, it still appears that um, that's going to be a big issue for Watson going forward this season. He was hit a number of times by the Saints. Jacksonville, uh, they lost Miles Jack early in that game. To uh, He was thrown out of the game by the ref. Um, so obviously having him back for the full game, unless something else ridiculous happens, uh, is going to be a huge benefit for the Jags going against this Houston offensive front. Don't think the Houston has nearly as good of a performance against these Jacksonville corners uh, in his career. Deshaun Watson, about 20 points below uh, when matching up against Bouye and Ramsey uh, in his career in a couple starts. About 20 points below his passer rating in average uh, when he's facing this Jacksonville team. So not a team that he has a ton of success against. Uh, I think this is a nice spot to look for the under at 44, 43 and a half. Also think this point spread a little bit inflated too. Two bets kind of go together, but we'll probably see a much different performance from both of these teams in week two in a very competitive uh, game down in Houston. And now we've got the LA Chargers at the Detroit Lions, and this is another one where we haven't seen too much movement. Um, it looks like the market might be seeing past that that Detroit Lions collapse, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a minute. Um, they've taken them enough at, at plus three to drop them down to plus two and a half. And the over-under is fairly solid at 47.5. Now, in terms of their performances, the LA Chargers were pretty much as expected against the Colts. Um, and as I just alluded to, the Lions, they let slip, I think it's 24-9 lead in the fourth quarter, uh, came to a 27-27 comeback. And now I'm sure, Adam, that must have been frustrating for anyone that had the Lions on the handicap. And this game is going to be difficult to analyze, but what do you make of it? It was frustrating for me because I had the Lions on the handicap. Fortunately, uh, ended up taking the second half over in anticipation of points. So I ended up sort of netting out on that game at a relatively even rate. But um, yeah, it was it was an enormous, enormous loss for the Lions who absolutely dominated the first three quarters of that game. And there's no real way to look around that. Stafford was looking great as well. Uh, he was throwing the deep ball with uh, tremendous accuracy. He was being extremely aggressive, uh, 11.9 air yards per attempt. Like that's a huge number for Stafford in this offense. Um, I really don't have too much to say on this game. I don't love the matchup of Detroit and the offense against this Chargers defense, which can play. Uh, it's going to be a very different look for them playing with a lot of speed. Uh, Stafford's not going to have those open windows to throw into. Uh, they'll be interested to see how they adjust for that. I also, I just lost a lot of, I guess, respect and sort of appreciation for Matt Patricia, uh, the head coach of the Detroit Lions. How he handled the post-game press conference was pretty bizarre, but then he went as far as saying that he didn't sleep all Sunday night, and he was saying some weird things on Monday morning about how the, the team handled that loss as a whole. Uh, his play calling got extremely conservative, um, that was a game that the Detroit Lions, they had to stay aggressive. They had to win, taking advantage of the rookie QB and the head coach, um, ending up with a tie in that game. Extremely disappointing for this team. Uh, extremely disappointing going forward. Chargers, we know they play well on the road because they don't play ever at home. Uh, despite playing in a stadium in L.A., they have the smallest 
home field advantage of any team in the NFL in terms of a point spread perspective. Um, so it's not like we're going to see a huge difference between them playing at home and them going on the road. So I think it's very easy to price this Chargers team away from home uh, just because there's not a lot to really add into the number. The fact that they can go with five or six defensive backs is going to give Detroit a lot of issues, probably going to prevent them from running the ball a lot. So it's going to keep this game pretty competitive. Just not sure. I necessarily love the spot. We all know how Stafford does against winning quarterbacks in his career, and it's not good, um, which is why we probably saw him overachieve last week to an extent against the Arizona Cardinals with first-timer Kyler Murray. Um, just not a game I like at all from a betting perspective. I think the price is right, both for the point spread and the total. I think that's why we haven't seen it move. If anything, this total is going to go up. We'll probably see a trend towards 49, but a good game to avoid. So we've got the Minnesota Vikings at the Green Bay Packers and this one it seems like people are respecting Green Bay's result from week one. They've moved a little from minus two and a half to minus three. The over-under has also dropped from 46 to 44 and while the market is still seeing a lot of action on the under, it's it's potentially at its max, it, it may not drop any further. Um, the Vikings were comfortable winners against the Falcons perhaps more so than the, the scoreboard would have suggested. And as I said, the Packers started well with that win over the Bears. So is there any value in taking the Packers here or is it too close to cool? Well, we got into it a little bit on the opening line on Monday morning, uh, late Sunday night, if you're in North America listening to this. But um, Kirk Cousins threw 10 passes. And I, I mean, it takes a lot to get me excited, um, saying that a bit sarcastically. But to see a box score in 2019 where a quarterback – a starting quarterback, no injuries, no nothing, threw 10 passes and ended up winning the game 28 to 12. That's, I don't even know what word describes it, but we knew that under Mike Zimmer coming into this season that there was going to be an increased emphasis on running the football. He wanted to do it more than any other coach in the NFL and anyone that just pays attention to basic NFL analytics knows that running the football more than passing the football just for the sake of doing so and not doing so in optimal play-calling situations puts you at a significant disadvantage. And to him, it was fine running the football at a three-to-one rate. And his stubbornness and his willingness to continue doing so is something that I think is going to ultimately hinder the Minnesota Vikings at some point this season. Now, Cook looked phenomenal in preseason. He looked incredible last week as well against the Atlanta Falcons. Um, so there is some merit to this ground game, but they do only run outside zone outside zone blocking schemes. Um, and while the Atlanta Falcons, a defensive team that can't get a lot of pressure downfield with their pass rush, was certainly vulnerable to that running style. The Green Bay Packers, uh, they played with seven defensive backs or safeties on at least 42 snaps in the game last week against Chicago. There's so much speed and talent on this Packers defense. They're going to be able to get into the backfield and blow up these outside zone schemes. They're also going to be able to go step for step with Cook coming out of the backfield. So there's going to be more pressure on Kirk Cousins to make throws. And if there's something that he doesn't throw well into, that is pressure coming up the middle at him. So how does Mike Zimmer adjust to make a game plan after doing something that I mean, I haven't. I don't remember the last time a team ran three to one and even had a winning result like that in in years. So he's going to have to obviously alter from that to go against this Green Bay um, defense, which I think is really still getting disrespected. 
Um, with the Packers having extra prep time as well, they played way back on Thursday. So they have the extra four days of rest as well as the extra four days of prep. So that's going to go a long way. A little bit concerned about their offensive line going against this Minnesota front. Um, Minnesota, as we mentioned in the preview podcast, uh, 10 of 11 returning defensive starters. Uh, they looked absolutely fantastic against Atlanta. Obviously, the Falcons have one of the worst offensive lines starting two rookies in the NFL, so that was certainly exposed. Uh, but I do think that this Minnesota defense has some success against this Green Bay offensive line and causes some more trouble uh, for Rodgers and this offense who just need a little bit more time to get clicking. So uh, total coming down makes sense, not only from the play calling, but from the defensive matchup perspective. Point spread sitting at three makes sense as well. Divisional game, both to these teams and to the season price quite equally. If anything, this is maybe a touch over adjusted for the Minnesota Vikings coming off of that win on Sunday. Um, I would say that there's potentially a little bit of value in the number with Green Bay uh, at two and a half. Certainly value at three, maybe just a touch, but a fair price for me here. Probably Green Bay three and a half. So a pretty well priced game by the books. And now New England Patriots at the Miami Dolphins, and I've been I've been looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one. The the Patriots opened up at minus fifteen. They're now out to minus eighteen and a half, and they're actually still seeing some action on the market at that number. Um, it means we've seen the over under go up by a point, and probably wouldn't be surprising to see that go up further. I mean, I'll I'll keep it short and sweet. The Patriots demolished the Steelers. The Dolphins barely turned up against the Ravens. How on earth do you approach this one from a betting perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we have to go too far into this one. Um, look ahead in the summer on this game was eight and a half. Uh, the look ahead last week was 11 and a half. So we're seeing a 10 or 11 a point adjustment from the middle of the summer. Obviously, a lot of departures from this Miami team. Uh, New England, obviously benefiting from a lot of acquisitions. Uh, a couple things I will say is that this number is probably actually still a touch short, and it's hard to say that just because of the Miami home field narrative in September. Uh, betters, for whatever reason, uh, last week and this week as well, and we'll touch on the Broncos in a second, but they're really latching on to these home field narrative stats. And with the Heat in Miami, New England obviously struggled there last year, going coming away with a loss. Um, People are trying very hard to find a reason to back the Miami Dolphins. I think the biggest concerning story with this overall is that a lot of players on the Dolphins, uh, there were reports after the game that they called their agents requesting a trade. And while that's not super unusual, what makes this very concerning for the Dolphins is a lot of the reasons that came out in that initial news report were a disbelief in the coaching staff. And this is a first-time coaching staff under Brian Flores leading this team. So it's hard enough to do that as a first-time coach in the NFL and find success when your players don't believe in you. Uh, that creates a lot of concerns. So whether it's the divided intentions of wanting to tank to get a, a franchise quarterback, I don't know. But it's certainly a mess in Miami and not something I want to step into. And if we go a little bit down the narrative rat hole, um, I guess it's a rabbit hole, not a rat hole. Um, we can see that Belichick, obviously, very close with Flores, as is all of the New England coaching staff. So when it comes to winning by 21 points or more on the road, that usually requires what we saw last week from Baltimore. Uh, going for it on a fake punt when they're up by 30 points. Uh, but it usually requires a little bit of sort of 
running up the score and rubbing it in a little bit. I'm not sure, given the relationship between the coaching staff, that that's necessarily going to be something we see from the Patriots, who usually go down that route more than anyone. Uh, so we might see things just a little bit tighter in this one. But, I mean, you don't want to be laying 20 points with a road favorite uh, in the NFL in 2019. I certainly don't see any reason to back Miami. I understand why this point spread's going up and will probably continue to trend towards 20 or 21 before game time on Sunday. Uh, the total moving up certainly related to that as well. Uh, you can't really get a big favorite going up without the total responding in the same way too. So it, it's just not a game that anyone should be betting. But I understand why people are intrigued by both sides just because the narratives more so than the numbers are so powerful. So now on to San Francisco 49ers at the Cincinnati Bengals. And this one I know is one that's that's been difficult for the traders, caused them a little bit of a headache. They opened the 49ers up as uh, minus one and a half favourites. The early money then suggested it it could well have been more. Since then, the people have just hammered the Bengals out to, to minus two. Um, and they seem to have completely lost faith in the road teams. And in amongst all of that, the, the over-under has bumped up by half a point to 45 now. The 49ers obviously cruised to victory in week one. The Bengals were just edged out by the Seahawks despite being plus 10 on the handicap. The The market seems sure on this one now. Are you feeling the same as everyone else? Well, so my question, and maybe you have a little more insight from the traders, is we. I know we talked about it on the preview pod, and I was very taken back from it because I expected Cincinnati money. I remember you said that the traders were anticipating San Francisco. Was that a a feeling from them that San Francisco could potentially be priced higher or was that them anticipating the market to be coming in on San Francisco? I think the, the, the anticipation was the market to come in on San Francisco and potentially what we've seen is maybe limits are coming into play here and obviously those early numbers into as the week progresses begin to come into play and, and that could be what we're seeing here. So I, then I guess my answer to that would be it, it, I can see why there's money coming in on Cincinnati because, again, it's important to dive into the box scores and take away a little bit from it. Um, the Bengals-Seahawks was a neutral state game for 60 minutes, so it was within one score. So we can really take out all of the numbers from that box score. Uh, Cincinnati outgained Seattle by 196 yards despite losing by one point. Uh, they also threw for 234 more yards than the Seattle Seahawks. And then on a per-play basis, Cincinnati outgained Seattle by plus 1.3 yards per play. And really, the Cincinnati defensive front was what stood out. Despite the Seahawks being a run-heavy team, they ran 25 rushes, 20 passes. The Seahawks rushed for just 2.9 yards per carry which is extremely low for them cincinnati they had 10 more first downs and they had drives that reached the seattle 12 27 34 and four yard line which resulted in a total of three points so from a box score perspective the cincinnati Bengals come away with that road win uh, 98 out of 100 times uh, so it's it's not a surprise to see the team that is one of those two of 100 times is the seattle seahawks who at home, always somehow find a way to come out with the most ridiculous victories. Uh, but I certainly understand why this market is responding a little bit to Cincinnati, especially considering how bad San Francisco looked on the road at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That scoreline very much inflated by two pick sixes from a secondary that 
everyone had graded to be one of the worst units entering the 2019 season. So that was my surprise back on the preview podcast Monday morning uh, when we were looking. And it really caught me off guard that they were expecting San Francisco money, uh, just given that when we're looking a little bit into how player or betters are going to be reacting to what happened in week one, there was just such a an overwhelming case to bet Cincinnati. As far as this game goes, I would love to be on San Francisco in this spot. I think Cincinnati, that performance, given that it was a first-time head coaching collective unit on the road in Seattle, a very difficult spot to perform. That certainly surprised me. I don't think that this play from Andy Dalton and company is sustainable. I think the injury to Joe Mixon, uh, potentially enormous. We'll see how his status is throughout the course of the week. I'd love to back San Francisco, but again, these back-to-back road games to begin a season, extremely difficult. And this is a lot of travel for San Francisco going across the country to Tampa Bay and then going across the country the other way up to Cincinnati. It's just not a favorable spot to really get behind the San Francisco 49ers, but I I certainly can't be going to the window to back Cincinnati in this spot either. So it's another game where it's probably best to stay away in terms of the, the spread. If it's already gone up to two, I would suspect that there's some appetite to get this to Cincinnati minus three. Uh, as far as the total, uh, it probably stays pretty consistent around 45 for the rest of the week. And now we're on to the Seattle Seahawks at the Pittsburgh Steelers and not a great deal of movement here. The Steelers have moved out to minus four after opening up at minus three and a half and the over-under has stayed put at six, 46 and a half. Um, I think that the Seahawks, as you said, they disappointed in week one. The Steelers are in a similar position. They only managed a field goal against the Patriots. Do you think here that the Steelers are going to up their performance? Uh, they're on their own patch. Can they get the job done? Steelers are definitely the side to look at here. Um, and this is just really judging off of what we saw in week one and looking at the market reactions. So the Steelers on the look ahead were four and a half. They opened up at Pinnacle at three and a half. Um, I Again, I understand why you get such a big blowout loss versus a win. Uh, the market's going to respond to that. But at three and a half, that's a one point adjustment down. And really what that's saying is that the performance of the Seattle Seahawks versus the performance of the Pittsburgh Steelers, knowing that look ahead that was such it was in place from the summer. It was in place last week. So it's really just going up for the performance in week one. I just poked a lot of holes in the Seattle case. Um, certainly a fraudulent win if we're ever going to see one. Uh, but that defense, just watching the game, reviewing it, re-watching it, uh, the coverage, certainly an enormous point of concern for the Seattle Seahawks. But from just a spot perspective, Pittsburgh walked in to about as poor of a spot as you could possibly imagine on Sunday Night Football as the banner-raising ceremony for the Patriots. But more importantly, that offense versus defensive matchup. The Patriots' defense is arguably a top-three unit in the entire league. And it doesn't get nearly the respect that it deserves. They've got depth at linebacker, but they've also got uh, a man coverage unit that plays man defense at the highest rate in the NFL. But probably some of the most underrated corners, which I think are, I think um, Stefan Gilmore is the number one corner in the NFL. Uh, he certainly showed it against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, you have Pittsburgh coming in and sort of adjusting to a couple new new schemes within their offense, uh, a new offensive line coach, which we certainly saw the Patriots get some pressure on Roethlisberger as well with their pass rush. Um, so it was just a really bad spot. So as although the scoreboard read 33-3, to three, um, 
I don't think that the Steelers are nearly as bad as that performance made them look. Uh, and as far as the Seattle scoreboard, 21 to 20 in favor of the Seahawks, uh, that game made Seattle look a lot better. So I talked about these push-pull situations. This is certainly one of them. I think the price is awfully short on Pittsburgh. Very difficult spot for Seattle uh, to travel and go on the road at the Steelers for their home opener. I think the Steelers win this one pretty comfortably. Price is short. Certainly value at minus four. And now on to the Chicago Bears at the Denver Broncos. And we, we saw the Broncos start as underdogs and move out to favorites against the Raiders. The Raiders. And this week, they've actually gone the other way. They opened up as a, a one-point favorite, but now it's the Bears who lead the market at, at two, two and a half. Um, and they're still looking or taking a lot of action on that number. Um, these are two teams that disappointed in the opening weekend. The Bears struggled against the Packers, as you said, low score, um, while the Broncos were beaten by the Raiders. So is the market right in siding with the Bears? It might surprise you, but I have a lot to say about this game. Um, this is this is as big of a narrative game as you're going to see throughout the course of the season. And I would challenge anyone listening to this to just hit pause on the podcast right now and think to yourself, why, if you have a bet on this game, are you betting either team? And I'm going to guess that most people doing this are not doing so based on any on-field analysis or numbers and they're only doing so because there's overwhelming situational narratives that support both of these teams. So there's the Denver home field narrative, and I'm not a trends guy at all. I don't buy into it. Um, but there's a number going back. I think it's 50-3 and three against the spread. It's something ridiculous for Denver at home in the first two weeks of the season. The reasoning behind that is the playing at altitude affects the opponents who have limited practice time coming into the season. They're not fully at shape. Then they have to go to the extreme altitude of Denver and the Broncos wear down teams. I, I, if that's not priced into the market after 25 years of sample size, then I mean, I don't know what to believe anymore. So if you think that you have an edge just because of that specific situation, uh, you're probably very misinformed. As far as the other narratives that apply here, Denver Broncos' Vic Fangio, head coach, obviously going up against his old team, Ed Donatel on the defensive coordinator for him, uh, was, the, was going up against Trubisky every day in practice a year ago. These two guys know Trubisky, know this Chicago offense, know Matt Nagy, as well as any two coaches in the league. So I think people are going to be very much pressing into that knowing his style as a supporting case for Denver. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the Broncos were probably the most disappointing team of the opening week, at least from my perspective. Uh, not only did they have extra time in camp and practice with uh, playing in the Hall of Fame game, they had an extra week, uh, started training camp very early, uh, but they just looked unprepared and lost on the road at an Oakland team that they should have been much more competitive. Uh, wasn't until late in the game when Oakland had a comfortable lead that this offense really came around. But um, just looking at what they want to do with the football, which is run going up against the Chicago Bears, who completely shut down Aaron Jones and the Packers, a much better running and blocking unit than the Broncos have. I don't see how Denver gets to moving the football on the ground in this game, which is really going to hinder them. And then Chicago narrative really strong against Trubisky. 
I mean, I haven't seen a player in the NFL get buried that bad after a performance in a very long time. And with it being opening night, everyone was watching that performance fresh in his mind. But I think he gets a little bit of a pass. And I'm not a big Trubisky guy. I don't see him as a long-term great quarterback within this league. We know something that he struggles with is throwing the ball downfield. It's no surprise that he went two for seven with an INT on throws of 15 yards or more against the Packers. He also struggles for whatever reason throwing to his left, uh, especially past the line of scrimmage. Those throws against the Packers resulted in a net passing grade of 40 uh, with a three for seven overall completion versus incompletion percentage. So, I mean, that's not good. But what we have to take into account, too, is the Chicago Bears. That play calling was bizarre. Um, He had 45 pass attempts. There was 53 pass snaps in total versus 12 run plays. Uh, But where it's really difficult for Trubisky last week Uh, The Packers had 71 defensive plays, but defensive backs and safeties accounted for 406 total snaps. So the Packers played with seven defensive backs for at least 26 of the 71 snaps and at least six, five defensive backs, sorry, uh, for 55 of the 71 defensive plays. So that speed and that man coverage ability that the Packers has is exactly what Trubisky struggles against. And it's no surprise he threw the highest percentage of his pass attempts into coverage where the defender was within one yard of his intended receiver. Pressure didn't benefit him either. Trubisky was under pressure 21 of his 53 dropbacks. His completion percentage went from 66% in a clean pocket to 40 when under pressure. His yards per attempt, 6.2 in a clean pocket, not great as it is, to 2.9 under pressure. So that's, I mean, shocking as it is to see that big of a decline. But he's probably not going to experience that man coverage rate with the Broncos. Vic Fangio, as he is sort of uh, acclaimed as this great defensive coach, he plays a lot softer defense than what we saw uh, from Mike Pettin and the Packers. He's very much a let everything happen in front of you, and then the defense swarm in on it. That's why Derek Carr had such a high completion percentage, and that system of the Raiders worked so well against the Broncos' defense. Trubisky, he's not going to be throwing the ball deep. We know that's his weakness, which means he's going to get these underneath throws. He's going to have a lot more success in this game against this Broncos' defense. Broncos pass rush, non-existent against the Raiders, who have one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL. If the Bears' offensive line, which isn't a whole lot better, can just give Trubisky a little bit of support, the Bears are going to be able to move this football. The defense of Chicago, very much underrated. Certainly understand this move up from pick to two and a half. I would not be surprised to see it hit three. Uh, But again, it's just a little bit difficult to lay that much of a number on the road, which signals that uh, the Bears, you have to think that the Broncos getting a little bit of an extra half point for the home field advantage. This is saying that the Bears about a six-point favorite on a neutral field. Not sure that's the case in this one. So it's just a touch overpriced for me. Uh, But I certainly can't get behind backing the Broncos in this situation as everything on field points to the Bears. There's certainly some strong opinions there, Adam. I think we'll get a a klaxon ready for next week as a a warning to the listeners. A a klaxon. So we've got the Kansas City Chiefs at the Oakland Raiders next. And it seems like the traders are pretty confident with their opener on this one. They haven't moved the Chiefs off minus seven and a half. And the over-under has only gone up half a point to 52 and a half. It potentially could be coming back down soon, but it looks pretty solid there. Um, the Chiefs win over the Jaguars. We, we've touched on Foles already. I mean, 
that dominance was probably inflated by the fact that that the Jags had to go to their backup quarterback. Um, but Mahomes and the Chiefs, they did look very strong on the offense. So are we going to see another dominant performance from one of the Super Bowl contenders, do you think? Uh, I think the loss of Tyreek Hill certainly is going to be a big blow for the Chiefs just with their ability to stretch up the the opposing secondary and create some space for Mahomes throwing underneath. He's going to be out for a little bit. There's also some concerns with the ankle of Mahomes. Uh, looked like just a basic strain. Uh, but I think there might be a little bit something more lingering with that injury as we go through the course of the season. So it'll be interesting to see um, going on the road to play at Oakland, how how much he's pushed uh, without his main number one receiver uh, and how, how he's able to create and find some space. I'm on Oakland in this one. I took plus eight. Uh, I think it's going to continue trending down towards seven. Uh, I think for the same reasons I just uh, described that Oakland had success against the Denver Broncos on Monday night. We're going to see the same thing happen here again. Um, uh, The Oakland offensive system uh, means that Derek Carr has to get the ball out of his hand extremely fast. He's not throwing the ball downfield very far. Um, if you look at the, his time to throw from the time that the ball was snapped to the time it released from his hand, 2.31 seconds, which was the second quickest release rate of all quarterbacks in week one. Uh, and his intended air yard, 7.7. So that's up a little bit, um, showing a bit of creativity within this offense, despite the loss of Antonio Brown. But things really came together for him. Uh, I thought Derek Carr performed extremely well. His completion percentage, 84.6%. Uh, was quite higher than his expected completion percentage at 70.2, but he was making a lot of smart throws. Only 10% of his throws were into tight coverage windows, so he was really taking what the defense gave him. And as we mentioned with Minshew, uh, although that was uh, fueled by a little bit of game state, the Kansas City defense and coverage, very, very soft. So they're going to concede these underneath throws to the Raiders. Oakland's going to be able to move the ball, and getting eight points, now seven uh, anything higher than a touchdown at home, uh, that's a pretty enormous number. And that means Kansas City really going to have to keep moving forward and really press it. I just don't see that there to this rate uh, with the loss of Tyreek Hill. We're seeing the total on this one tick up. 52 is now 53 and a half. I think that makes sense given that both of these defenses are uh, pretty soft in coverage. The loss of Abram for Oakland, the rookie safety, that's an enormous blow, but it's somewhat cushioned by the fact that Tyreek Hill's not going to be there. So, uh, Oakland can really focus on keying in on Sammy Watkins and make this Kansas City offense operate in a way that we really haven't seen it uh, for quite a while. So probably going to see the Kansas City offense taper off a little bit. Oakland's going to be able to get, take advantage of these easy passes, move the football. Uh, I think eight points is too many in this one. And just on Mahomes, it's kind of interesting to know. Obviously, during the game, I think he came off and he was going to miss one of the plays and then there ended up being a scuffle when he could come back on to, to make it. Are you, in that situation, are you kind of jotting these things down, noting them to see if maybe the market has picked up on it? How does it work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when a quarterback of that stature gets hurt, um, it's very much about looking at, at how he ended up playing and then also what the market will react to. Uh, from my perspective, there really hasn't been any reaction here on the Mahomes injury from within the market because I don't think people are seeing it as an injury. Um, he ended up he went off the field twice on two separate drives. The first time he got it taped up and it was listed as a sprain. Uh, but it seems like it's a little bit higher than that. If it's, and I'm not an injury expert, but reading from other folks who are in the industry, uh, 
a low ankle sprain. I think all of us can relate to whether we played basketball or, or jumped off of a wet sidewalk and slipped a little bit in the winter, whatever it may be. Um, you know that those can sort of be supported by shoes. And in football's case, you can tape it up and you can get some support on that. But when it's a little bit higher, it causes some issues that sort of linger. And Mahomes being such a great passer outside of the pocket, you have to sort of equate the injury to his playing style. In this case, any sort of reduction in mobility will severely hamper him uh, to some extent throughout the course of the season. So with this being uh, the second road game in a row for Kansas City, they haven't really had that time to recoup. And it falls into that situation where uh, the market doesn't tend to react to these back-to-back home situations to begin the year and tends to really overinflate these teams, especially off of a win. Just uh, taking that into account with the Tyreek Hill injury, uh, maybe a little bit more limited mobility from Mahomes, it's going to maybe put this ball on the ground in the hands of McCoy or Williams a little bit more. And that, I think, leads well to keeping the game state a little bit more neutral um, and benefits into the Raiders. So now we've got the New Orleans Saints at the LA Rams, and this one's probably up there as the highlight game for a lot of people. I mean, it's certainly attracting a lot of attention. The market does seem fairly balanced at the Rams minus two and a half, and the over-under it's dropped from 54 to 53. Um, it looks like we could potentially see a repeat of that NFC Championship game. I mean, albeit not, not as dramatic as it was last year, but do you think that's going to be the case? I think it's going to be equally competitive. I don't think we're going to see it end the same way. And any Saints fan or Rams fan can sort of relate to how that that one ended under an unfortunate call. But I do think that we see a similar competitive lower scoring game. And I think the under here poses value already a bet I have in my account from earlier in the week. Um, And I'll sort of pick on both quarterbacks here. I'm no stranger to picking on Jared Goff. If anyone listened to any of anything I said uh, towards the course of the uh, season last year, and especially towards the end, he was a quarterback that I was very uh, against. Um, he relies on Sean McVay for way too much, especially given this point in his career. Uh, he needs McVay to call the defense for him, and that's concerning. And there really hasn't been an improvement, especially in week one. But rather than going down that path, I think it's important to put some numbers behind what he did. He played a Carolina defense, uh, which was projected to be a bottom five secondary in the league, a lot of youth within that secondary. And his accuracy was an enormous problem. He was missing easy throws. And this is a bit more on the eye test thing to start before we dive into some numbers. But uh, I, he threw six or seven passes where he wildly underthrew or overthrew a receiver that had potential to get uh, at least 15 to 20 extra yards on that throw. And they were those crossing patterns that the Rams loved to run. So it's not like it was any new play calling that he was struggling with. These were just old, consistent throws that he's used to making. But Goff finished the week with the worst completion percentage versus expectation differential at minus 10.6%. So that was 4% worse than any other quarterback in week one. His 59% actual completion versus 70% expected Um, Again, it becomes concerning because his intended air yards, only 6.8 yards per pass, that was the ninth lowest. So it's not like he was throwing the ball downfield where he's had some struggles in the past. Everything was very close and close to the line of scrimmage and the routes were very familiar to him. So he was missing throws, again, that he usually makes. These are simple passes that he was just missing against the very poor Carolina secondary and pressure. His biggest issue overall continues to be the thing that brings him down. Goff had 41 dropbacks against Carolina. He was under pressure on 27 of those snaps, 
When the pocket was clean, he averaged 5.6 yards per attempt. So that's it's still low, but it's acceptable in the 74.1% completion percentage, a passer rating 84.2. So those are pretty good numbers from a clean pocket. But the drop-off, my goodness, on the 14 snaps, he was under pressure. His yards per attempt dipped from 5.6 to 2.8, which is hard to believe. His completion percentage dropped from 74 to 25%, and his passer rating from 84.2 to 39.6. The difference in adjusted completion percentage between clean and pressure went from 77% to 50%. And all this is really concerning because the Rams have the least experienced interior offensive line, left guard, center, right guard, in terms of snap count in the league. The fact that they gave up 35% pressure to Carolina, which, although they have great linebacker depth, really not strong in pass rush. Very concerning going up against the Saints, who consistently played in the backfield of the Texans all night long. I think they finished the game with six sacks, uh, extremely high pressure rate. So the Saints can get pressure on Goff right up the middle. I think that's going to drastically change the play calling for the Rams, keep things very conservative for them, knowing that Jared Goff is just he has such a huge decline uh, when he's facing pressure. In terms of Drew Brees, won't necessarily be a popular opinion. Uh, but I think it's sort of time to begin worrying for him. Uh, he's shown a bit of a decline in arm strength the last couple of seasons. But this one, again, really dependent on the eye test. If you go back and you watch whether the full game or the condensed game of the Saints-Texans from Monday night, you'll see that there was, I counted personally, six different times where Drew Brees threw a completion, but the receivers caught the ball on his knees and that might sort of appear like oh well his receivers are are making great plays for him uh, but when you really watch it none of those plays were under pressure uh, and also the coverage uh, was very soft on those so he was really under throwing a lot of his receivers and when you look at how the play calling for Sean Payton has changed this offense used to be uh, all about setting up the deep shot until the pass late to Ted Ginn which was with just a couple minutes left in the fourth quarter, Drew Brees did not throw a pass attempt further than 15 yards down the field. If he did not throw that pass to Ted Ginn, he would have been the only quarterback in week one not to attempt a deep throw down the field. And this is against a very soft Houston Texans secondary. Um, the Rams certainly able to get a little more pressure on him. They also play a little bit tighter coverage. Um, on him as well so we saw it in the in the game against the Rams in the playoffs where there was a lot more emphasis on running the football for the New Orleans Saints and that took away from it uh, quite a bit Rams play a little more man coverage and then we saw the Texans play so that's gonna put a little bit more pressure on Drew Brees but uh, Brees still with all these numbers we're talking about how he's throwing these underthrows he's he's missing receivers he only threw three balls the entire game against the Houston Texans into a spot where the nearest defender was within one yard of the receiver. So these are open throws that he's underthrowing. And even on the Ginn pass that was deep down the field, his only deep attempt, Ted Ginn had to cut that route off, and he really slowed it down. So in terms of completion rate versus expected completion rate, uh, Breeze finished plus 10.4. Uh, that puts him among the best quarterbacks in week one. So while he's getting priced to that extent, uh, I still think there's some concerns with Breeze. Going to see a little more conservative play calling. Um, Eric McCoy, a guy to watch on the offensive line, he allowed two pressures. It might not sound like a lot, but last year, 
Max Unger, the center for the Saints, the longtime center, which was replaced by the rookie this year. He allowed just 14 pressures all regular season. Drew Brees, most uncomfortable, just like Goff when there's pressure up the middle. That's a size thing that's existed throughout his entire career. Uh, Rams, we know what their interior defensive line can do. So that's something to keep an eye on this game. I think both defensive lines have success. Quarterback struggle, we see a little bit more conservative play calling. Certainly see some value on the under. And if we forget about pass interference calls or, or lack of pass interference calls, how much value are you putting on head-to-head records or, or recent results against one another? Uh, not much. Maybe within the same season, within the division, a little bit more than usual. Um, but just because there's so many changes in personnel and things turn over so much between teams in the offseason, um, it, it's not something that I put a lot of weight into. I will look at it to an extent to get sort of some precedent for where the point spread should be. Um, if you see a big difference uh, within a point spread between matchups where like historically this year in the NFC East, uh, typically we were seeing a lot of head-to-head history result in the home team minus three. Uh, This year we're seeing some much bigger numbers as illustrated this week, Washington, a five point underdog uh, at home to Dallas. So like I use that sort of just to, to get like a benchmark for where the market sort of should be and within some windows and head-to-head matchups. But in terms of predicting outcomes uh, for handicaps, uh, maybe a little bit schematically if the game was played recent enough, but um, not something I'm looking at win-loss uh, back in the, back in the past to, to be a predictor of future outcomes within the game. And now we've got the Philadelphia Eagles at the Atlanta Falcons, and this one's yet to move off Eagles minus one and the over-under uh, of 51, but it does look like the traders are close to moving the Eagles out, which obviously could have a a major impact from a betting perspective. The The Falcons struggled against Minnesota. They they should fare better at home, but the Eagles, again, despite winning, they, they might not have filled a lot of people with confidence from week one. As I said, it seems like we're at a crucial point in terms of the betting. So how do people approach this? The home road splits for Matt Ryan, absolutely enormous. So I think that's going to factor into this a little bit. But um, until the Falcons prove that their offensive line is not a walking liability, I'm going to be a little bit reluctant to back them. I think this is a spot where you're just looking at the prices and you have to sort of think that this is a spot where Atlanta poses some value at home. I'm just not sure that's the case because the Eagles are going to be able to get any sort of pressure they want on Matt Ryan. We saw how much pressure disrupts what he do. While he's great against the blitz, uh, when there's pressure on him, it really causes some issues within the timing of this offense. Um, so it's just it's such a concerning matchup that I'm going to sort of ignore any value here. Certainly not rushing to back the Eagles either. They're usually one of the more sought after teams just because analytically they're so appealing to the that type of better. And it's usually very difficult to see any sort of movement against them. Uh, this year is no different. Uh, we saw them get better pretty, pretty heavily last week this year already up to two at some places, I would suspect. We probably see this get pushed towards three uh, as we get closer to game time. Not sure it gets to a three, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a two and a half. Um, But at this number within the dead zone here, not really something that I'm going to look to get involved with from the side. Total-wise, I'm sure that this is going to only build as a liability for um, the traders, as we get into Sunday evening, uh, this total has been holding steady at 51. I have a little bit of a lean towards the under. Um, it'll be interesting to see how long traders hold on to this number, though. Not too, too much to say in terms of on-field or narrative 
uh, talk going into this one. But I do think that just with the way that this line is presenting itself on the board, there's going to be a ton of interest in backing the Eagles in the over. And uh, I would not really take a stance on the point spread. But if anything, I'd be looking to the under on this total. So our final game of week two sees the Cleveland Browns at the New York Jets. And the the Browns are on the move from minus one to minus two and a half. The over-under has dropped half a point to 45 and a half. But it seems like people are still leaning towards the under. Now, the the Browns are obviously billed as a Super Bowl contender at the start of the season. Many Many people would have expected them to start off with a win against the Titans. They then went and lost the game by 30 points. The Jets, we know they lost out after being 16-0 up. Um, can the Browns do anything to live up to those early season expectations? 16-0. I like that reference dropped in there uh, on the Jets score. Um, this is uh, surprisingly probably to a lot of people listening, knowing how big of a Jets fan I am. They're really the only team that I don't. Uh, I'll have like a personal interest in rather than just a betting interest. I follow them extremely closely and have for years. Um, I don't really have a lot to say on this game. I think the point spread for the Cleveland Browns is going to be in a position for at least the first five to six weeks of the season where it's going to be accurately priced to the extent that it's not going to move just because we've had so much time. I say we, but I'm talking about bookmakers. Bookmakers have had so much time to react to all of this hype around the Cleveland Browns and all the focus and all of the liabilities from futures and long season wagers that people are supporting the Browns for. It's had a lot of time to really (laughs) dial in the price point. And we saw last week, they opened five and a half point favorites against the Tennessee Titans still drew a lot of attention. That point spread did not move the entire week. This one opens one minus 20, which really reads like a flat two and a half Um, going up against the Jets, just being how people saw the Jets struggle so mightily last week against the Buffalo Bills. I won't be surprised to see this go to three, but I don't really anticipate it going much higher than that. I think the Jets, uh, they lost Quincy and Nunwa for the season. That's going to be a bit of a blow. They did sign Demarius Thomas. Uh, How quickly he's able to perform or get on the field or just be integrated into this offense. Um, Not too sure. Uh, That'll be a wait and see approach, but when you look at the Jets, uh, 3.4 yards per play, that's not going to win you a football game ever. Uh, 3.4 yards per pass. Gase, we know he likes to run routes out to the sideline, but he became obsessed with Jamison Crowder and became content with throwing three to four yard attempts. Sam Darnold can be utilized in much better ways. Uh, Gase was also in love with running on second and 10. It was unbelievable. Almost every second and 10 all game, he was running the football hopelessly to set up third and eight only to throw it three or four yards uh just really i was expecting a lot more aggression from this jets team we'll also have to keep an eye on mosley and williams which i think are dictating a lot of this movement once cj mosley came out of the game for the new york jets the buffalo bills offensively looked like a completely different team it just really freed them up both of the guys were banged up coming out of the game on sunday currently find themselves on the injury report it's worth monitoring their status would certainly be the reason why this game could move to three. Uh, but I think this price is right where it needs to be. Unfortunately, I can't really get behind the Jets and see some value in here. I would love to and sort of have my interest aligned. But this game is, it's not just a stay away. It's a, a runaway and don't pay attention to it unless you have a, a rooting interest. There we go. There's our, another 16 games done. And that's all your insight from us from week two. Thanks again for joining me, Adam, and I'll I'll obviously speak to you again very soon when we take a look at those week three numbers.
talk to you on Sunday night. Enjoy the games. Thanks to everyone for listening. And remember that if you want to take a look at the odds in more detail, then head to pinnacle.com. And as always, please gamble responsibly. 